And, and my whole philosophy as a musician is not to copy somebody else, but to tell the story in your own voice. That's what the Grateful Dead taught me. <laughs> Welcome to Dead Tour Tales. As we approach the final tour for Dead & Company, summer 2023, we wanted to document the experiences of fellow Deadheads and Tourheads we've met along the way, including some of the legendary figures who've played a larger part in keeping the wheel of the Grateful Dead experience and culture rolling. We've met some pretty cool friends and characters along the way, and we felt this was a good opportunity to sit down, shoot the shit, and share with you some tales, both adventuresome and sometimes tragic, and usually psychedelic. Buckle up, kids. It's Dead Tour Tales time. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Another episode of Dead Tour Tales. We're stoked you're here. Thanks for listening. Uh, we got a we got a big one in the a big fish in the studio today. We got David Gans with us. He's going to share from his rich, rich history of uh, all things Grateful Dead and music and his his rad life. So we're super stoked and honored and humbled to have him shoot the shit with us today. Uh, before we get into that real quick, the obligatory Check out our merch, buy our merch, deadtortales.com. Send us an email, bananas at deadtortales.com. Check out our past, current, and future episodes. Also, deadtortales.com, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And uh, maybe check out our Patreon. We've got uh, some cool offerings for your uh, extra extra hard-earned dollars, if you have any. So, okay, how do we, how do we introduce David Gans? Wow. Uh, all right. I'm sure you all know who David is, but David is a prolific musician with an impressive list of recordings, all available on his record label, Perfectible Recordings. He is a, a journalist and author, author of no, notable books, playing in the band, an oral and visual portrait of the Grateful Dead, also Conversations with the Dead, and This is All a Dream We Dreamed, co-written with Blair Jackson. Uh, also a broadcaster slash radio host extraordinaire, David, known for his legendary syndicated radio show, The Grateful Dead Hour, and his current show on Sirius XM satellite radio, Tales from the Golden Road, with his pal, Gary Lambert. Uh, another thing I want to say about David, which I think is really cool, uh, starting the beginning of the pandemic, he started playing and streaming uh, every day, his playing and recording. So there's no shortage of opportunities to catch David play and uh, give him a shout and uh, uh, get down to some rad Grateful Dead uh, music and his own original stuff, which is super great. So, uh, and, and one thing, too, that I just learned, I had no idea, and I think this is pretty cool. Uh, David was credited by many for encouraging Phil Lesh to emerge from retirement. Uh, what? Yeah, right? Phil played several shows with David and the Broken Angels in late 97 and early 98. And David wow. even assembled interesting combinations of musicians for Lesh to jam with in a series of benefits for Lesh's Unbroken Chain Foundation, culminating with a sold-out show at the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco on January 31st, 1998. 
Wow. Uh, so that was kind of the impetus for Phil and Friends. So I didn't know that. That's really cool. That's so cool. Yeah. So, all right, cool. Again, we're super stoked, honored, and humbled to have David Gans uh, with us today. This is one of those. This is one of those guests where you just sit back and shut up and, and listen, right? I hear you. So. Definitely. All right, cool. Here we go. All right, welcome back, everybody. Um, I can't begin to tell you how honored and grateful I am to have our today's guest with us. Um, I'm humbled to welcome uh, David Gans to the show today. He's going to wrap with us for a little bit. Uh, his experience with Grateful Dead shows, what he's got going on currently. I swear he's, he's the busiest man in, in show business, <laughs> uh, honestly. So, uh, David, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, why don't you take a minute and just kind of tell us some of the things you have going on uh, yeah. currently? Well, I'm one of those people that uh, when the pandemic shut everything down, I just sort of turned around and looked at the situation and said, okay, what can I do to keep things moving forward here? And the simplest and what's turned out to be the absolutely most amazing solution to not being able to go on tour was that I started playing a live show at home every day. And I started on April 3rd of 2020. So we're coming up on three years. Wow. And I've, I've missed a few here and there for, you know, I took a short vacation, got sick for a couple of days, got when I did go on tour a couple of times during that, you know, short tours and stuff. But I have played probably a little over a thousand, uh, roughly one hour sets uh, sitting in the chair I'm sitting in right now while I talk to you because the technology just stepped right up, you know, people, everybody started using zoom and it turns out to be pretty easy to do. And I played a few like house concerts on zoom where people would, you know, uh, assemble and I'd play songs for them and even answer requests and stuff and then just rattle the tip jar. And that worked out really well. So I just started doing it every day and, and, and it, it, not only turned out to be really, really fun, I actually made a few bucks doing it just by, you know, saying, here's my tip jar. And because I opened an online store so I could sell books and CDs and stuff. And you know that, James, because you printed some T-shirts for me, which are sitting in a box right on the other side of this room waiting to be sold. So we did. That's right. So I just yes, sort of <laughs> I just pivoted into playing at home. And of course, the other things that I do every week my two radio shows i've been doing from home anyway so you know it, it, i just it, when it came time to hunker down i started playing music at home and it's just been amazing i i'm stronger my singing and playing have never been stronger than they are today and weirdly wow. enough in the last year I started developing some like live music connections here in the Bay Area. I, I'm generally speaking, I've been touring because the Bay Area was not really that great a market for me. I wasn't part of the Terrapin Crossroads scene, you know, and I don't play in a dead cover band. I play dead related music in my own way and stuff. So I was going on the road a lot and and didn't have much going on here at home but in the last year or so i've hooked up with a whole bunch of non-deadhead musicians that i'm playing with i've started a band that we're calling garcia songbook live with joe craven the amazing joe craven oh yeah now joe and his band the sometimers put out a record a few years ago called garcia songbook which i adore and i've played every track from it on all of my radio shows 
And it's just taking those amazing songs, not just Jerry's own tunes like Gamora and, and Help on the Way, but covers, you know, songs that we got from Jerry, like Shady Grove and Russian Lullaby and stuff. And they just completely reinvented them. And, and I love that record. And I've known Joe off and on. You know, I've known Joe for years and I played with him only a few times here and there. But we were together at a festival in Edmonton last spring. In fact, I'm going there this week. We're going back for the second edition of this festival. But Joe and I had a set in a church in Edmonton in a room full of people. And it was just one of the most wonderful experiences, completely unrehearsed, just getting up there and blowing. And we had a great time. And they said, well, you have to come back and do this again next year. So I said to Joe, okay, well, let's just play together a bunch in between now and then so we really have it together when we come north again. So we've been doing that. We started playing. We're doing a sort of regular series of trio gigs at the Monkey House here in Berkeley, me and Joe at a third person. Uh, and, and so the other night we had Paul Katapish who plays uh, guitar and mandolin and stuff with Wake the Dead. So he was our third guy this this the other night. But we also started putting together a bigger thing so that we could do the same concept. We call it Garcia Songbook Live because we're doing the same thing. We're taking songs that are Jerry songs or Jerry related songs, but we're doing them in our own way. So you surround yourself with non-dead musicians who just love these songs because they're so great. And you can make a new kind of sound, you know, of that stuff. It's not, we don't play the licks the same way the Grateful Dead did. In fact, I told one of the players, I said, I like to remove all the Grateful Dead furniture from the room so we can occupy it with our own way of doing it. And right now I'm in the studio. We, I brought this group into the studio to record one song just to see how it goes. And we're doing a, a version of Addicts of My Life. And because wow. everybody in this band plays multiple instruments we have like this huge string section it's a bowed bass a cello and then joe himself came in and laid down three layers of violin on top of that and another thing of violin solos on top of that so we have like a six-piece string section plus piano plus my guitar and we're going to add some pedal steel to it that's the last thing we're going to be overdubbing and we've got four part vocals on it as well so this band and the some, Joe blew my mind after one of these sessions cuz he didn't wasn't familiar with Addicts of My Life. After despite the fact that he played with Jerry Garcia in the Garcia Grisman band right, for like right. 5 years, he was not <laughs> familiar with American Beauty. Oh, it was yeah. mind blowing to me, and and yeah. I mean it, it. It's fine because everybody who's playing on this record is not a big deadhead except me and Hobbs, the the uh, cello player. But everybody just gets the song. They go, "Oh man, this song is so great!" You know. So we're and my whole philosophy as a musician is not to copy somebody else, but to tell the story in your own voice. That's what the Grateful Dead taught me. The Grateful Dead would take a song like Morning Dew mm. or, you know, uh, Johnny Be Good or, um, uh, I mean, just they would take all these songs by other people and completely reinvent them and turn them into something of their own. And that's what I've been doing for 50 years. I started writing songs before I ever heard of the Grateful Dead. So I've been playing my own songs all these years. When I got into the dead, they just pointed me in all these directions at once. I started learning more about country music, about folk music, understanding more about how jazz works and stuff like that. 
So directly following the Grateful Dead's lead, I have made myself into the same kind of musician, somebody who blends interpretation of other people's songs with my own and links them together with improvisation. So to hook up with a bunch of musicians who play these songs amazingly in a way that's not specifically dead-like is kind of exactly where I want to be. And it's weird as hell that it emerged from three years of isolation. Right. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's amazing testament to, uh, to, to the songs and to that music itself. You know, it, it doesn't, ha- it's not just relegated to just the Grateful Dead and, you know, even Grateful Dead adjacent musicians or uh, those, those songs are powerful uh, American um it has a powerful American lineage, you know. And we knew that. We, I knew that when when, Jer- when Blair Jackson and I interviewed Jerry in 1981, that was one of the things that came up. I said, you know, this music is going to outlast the men who invented it. And Jerry recognized that fact, you know. Oh, I think that, Jerry knew, knew that and, completely. And, and that really is the legacy they left behind. I mean, not only you got, you know, thousands of hours of recordings of their performances, but they left behind this songbook of just wonderful, wonderful stuff, and that the rest of the world is picking up on now. We're seeing mm-hmm. so many things, like Dave mm-hmm. McMurray in Detroit made this, he's a saxophone player and a jazz sax player, but he's, he, you know, he, he made a record prompted by Don Was, who's who's the bass player in Wolf, Wolf Bros, and also yeah. the head of Blue Note Records. Mm-hmm. Don, you know, signed him to do an album of Grateful Dead songs. And Wake the Dead, I mentioned earlier, does... They're like a Celtic band, and they play Grateful Dead music in a Celtic style, mixing it in with jigs and reels and stuff. And there's a band on Martha's Vineyard that plays Grateful Dead songs reggae style. And there's a band (laughs) I'm going to be seeing next week uh, or next month at um, Skull and Roses called Mm -hmm. The Latin Dead. Mm -hmm. And they're playing Grateful Dead songs in front of a big Latin rhythm section, doing over salsa beats and stuff. So the music, the songs are great. The music is endlessly adaptable. And by the way, I play in my solo show, I use a looper mm-hmm. so I can accompany myself. And I have certain arrangements of songs that I, you know, have like two or three guitar parts of my own. But I've, I I don't play them. First of all, my vocal range is lower than Jerry's. So I have to change the key of the songs to bring them down to where I can sing them. And I, that also suits my wish to do them in my own way so i don't play the same licks they played i play them in a different key and i play them in a different groove so they sound like me doing a dead song instead of me doing the dead doing a dead song you know what i mean i do there's obviously there's plenty of room for the tribute band thing you know we have dark star orchestra who are just magnificent replicators of the vibe of the grateful dead thing and then there's all these guys. You have Matt Hartle in Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. Stu Allen up here in the Bay Area. There's all these guys all across the country that are like really, really good at doing the Jerry Garcia thing. And there are audiences for those people all over the country. You look at a website called GratefulDeadTributeBands.com and you say, OK, I'm in Akron, Ohio tonight. And it'll say, OK, well, you know, a couple miles away at this club, you'll find You know, the Jim Miller band is playing Grateful Dead music over here. So it's all over the country. You can find people playing this music and they're doing it in different ways. They're interpreting it or they're just doing it, you know, because they want to feel like the dead when they're doing it. But the music is so strong. The songs are so great that they're being played by thousands of people all over the world at all times. 
Absolutely. I think Bobby talked about recently too, how the music itself is alive. It's a, like a, <clears throat> almost a living, breathing entity with its own energy. Uh, you know, it, regardless of who's playing the music, uh, the, you know, the, the delivery is happening. The, the, the music continues and it lives on. And I think it's more alive now than it's ever been. You know, you mentioned all these people that are playing Grateful Dead music and the different, you know, things that they're doing with the music and the different realms they're playing in them in. And, you know, that gal that was uh, uh, playing like techno, you know, mixing Grateful Dead music with techno at playing in the sand. Like that's super cool. You know, like it's just really cool to see these younger generations really getting turned on to the music too. And, 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 you know, the freedom that they have to uh, take it in other places, which I think is testament to the Grateful Dead as well, uh, you know, about breaking boundaries and, you know, uh, pushing the envelope and, you know, exploring different territories with music. I think it's the music is that powerful that it's meant to do that, you know. That's true. And I think it's also true that there's a social uh, culture, a culture that has sprung up around it that has specific sort of behaviors involved. There was a guy called into Tales from the Golden Road yesterday was talking about his first time seeing the dead at Highgate in 94. Hmm. And other people have told this story along the way. You know, it's like coming home. John Denver, of all people, had this line in one of his songs, coming home to a place I'd never been before. Mm -hmm. And that feeling has been replicated by so many people so over the years. You walk into a scene and everybody's smiling. Everybody's hugging each other. Everybody's high on something. Everybody's waiting to experience an ecstatic thing together. And it, it attracts a certain kind of person. Yeah. And, and, and once you get a taste of that, it's hard to go back to other ways of doing stuff. And so you can walk into that thing, find yourself immediately accepted. And unless the music is just completely uninteresting to you, uh, it'll keep you there, you know? So it's, it, it's, it's doesn't surprise me that we're looking at now generation families of deadheads that are four generations deep. Yeah. It's really the coolest thing. It, it is so welcoming and it really does. It, it gets inside of you and it touches a part of your soul that, it really lights it up. You know, that's, that's my experience. And obviously, you know, millions and millions of others as well. So, and for me and lots of musicians like me, it means that I can go anywhere in the country, step on stage mm. with, a bunch, with a bunch of people I've never met before and have a, a, a musical conversation that says something and that entertains people and that, and, and comforts people, whatever. That, and I've done this countless times, walked into a room full of people I've never met before, but because we all speak the same language, we start playing and it goes well, you know, and, and uh, it, that's also just part of what makes this thing just so amazing is that it's a language mm. that we speak and that there's an audience of people that want to listen in on that conversation. And it happens at every level from dead and company in stadiums this summer to me playing a few dead songs in a room with like 50 people in it in a theater in Berkeley a few days ago. Wow. That's such a great way to put it too. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I love everything about what's happening with uh, Garcia songbook live. Um, The fact that, you know, you uh, are pretty, what's the, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is you're, you're very well known, um, 
well-known entity, a well-known person within the Grateful Dead universe. And for you to play, be a musician as well and playing music and play Grateful Dead music in your own way uh, and not being a part of, say, the Terrapin Crossroads scene or, you know, a, a, a specific Grateful Dead tribute band or cover band, you've stayed the course steadfastly play, not just Grateful Dead music, but played in your own way, but also your own music. You know, you have a legacy of, of, you know, songwriting and your own music as well. And then, you know, just playing out of within the, you know, forced confines at first of, you know, COVID uh, and then staying true to that and playing that for three years, like you said, and the beauty that's come out of that and that you've linked up with these other non grateful dead musicians to play this beautiful American songbook, uh, you know, that, that was recognized by Jerry Garcia as well. Uh, and with Joe Craven, who I'm also familiar with Joe because he plays with Matt Hartle, who also right. is from here in Santa Cruz where I live as well. Right. Uh, and he's they, part of painted mandolin, right? Exactly. They just put out a record. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, and how great that, uh, how perfectly, um, synchronistic, uh, for you all to link up, uh, and to play those songs. It's really amazing. And I, I can't wait to hear, hear it when it comes out. And I imagine you'll be playing some live shows as well. I hope we, we have, we've played two shows live already at the Ivy room. We're, our next live show for the, for the band is, uh, April 16th at the art house gallery in Berkeley. In Berkeley, okay. Apparently, my uh, our audience didn't buy enough booze to uh, <laughs> to meet the numbers at a bar, so we're going to a place that doesn't have a bar where the economics are a little more uh, friendly to potheads. Well, that works for me. I don't drink anyway, so <laughs> neither do I. Oh, yeah. So I, I hope to I hope to make it. That sounds really awesome. Yeah, um, it's, I'm working with Joe. It's just so amazing. We're both people that trust the process. And don't feel like we have to over rehearse things. And then when you do have a chance to work a few things out, you can really sharpen them up, you know. But it, it's so great to work with good singers and good players who are not subject to the dogma of doing it a certain way. Right. Sounds like a lot of freedom in that. I can tell that you're really lit up by it. That's really cool oh, to yeah. see. That, that's awesome. Wow. Well, I, I've been touring as a solo for 25 years, and I've played mm -hmm. with lots of other musicians along the way, and I've sat in with lots of bands and stuff. But I was thinking about the last time I was in a band that really worked on vocals was a, a good 10 years ago. And so wow. it's really nice to be involved with people like really good singers and, and, and like working it out in the studio is very different from doing it live. But some of the live stuff, again, we don't really rehearse much, especially since Joe lives 90 miles away. Uh, the, some of the singers have gotten together to rehearse a bit, but I, there were moments in our last show when there would be like a spontaneous four, maybe even five part harmony because the keyboard player, Joshua Raul Brody, Will it will find his way in? You know what I mean? It's like the 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 main singer starts singing, and then everybody else has the option of stacking something on top of that. And I've, I, it blows my mind where we're in the middle of a show, and suddenly I hear four and five voices, unrehearsed, doing a pretty clean harmony line. It's it's a it's wonderful. I named my record label Perfectible Recordings because when I was making my first record with our friends. We we would get to the end of a take and go, is that is that a keeper? 
And we'd say, oh, it's perfectible. With a little more work, we can make that one. We can make that take the keeper, right? So, and, and I, when I'm explaining the way we make music, I, I say that perfectible because in this way of music making, perfection is possible and can ha, and has been attained, you know, for as Jerry once said, seconds on end. <laughs> but the point is that perfection isn't what we're going for. We're not rehearsing up a perfected version of the song like we did it in the studio and then going out and playing it like the Eagles do, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Eagles are like ridiculously faithful down to the like hardware that amplifiers used for each song and stuff. So mm -hmm. they're, they're doing the other thing of, of doing it the, the perfected version. The Grateful Dead did it the other way. The Grateful Dead took the bar band ethos all the way into stadiums. Let's just get together and hang out and play, and we'll see how it feels today. And so every performance of the song is different because nobody's required to play the same exact thing every time. Bobby's rhythm guitar might have a different kind of vibe to it. He might play more or fewer chords in the course of this particular performance. You know, the tempo might be a little faster, a little slower. You know what I mean? Perfection isn't the goal. And so nobody gets all flummoxed if a bad note gets hit. You just move on. Sounds like a lot more freedom. And it's like both ends of the spectrum, right? And the way that the Grateful Dead played sounds like in the way that you're playing, I guess, with, with these guys is more freedom in that. You know, instead of chasing perfection, uh, you're, you're, I don't even want to say chasing, but you're allowing for uh, a feeling to, to happen, right? Um, which sounds, I don't know, sounds more fun to me, you know? And I know uh, when I'm listening, I mean, I don't need to go down this road, but I mean, when I'm listening to The Grateful Dead, where I get really uh, turned on is when I, I can, when I can feel that happening. I can feel those moments of, of magic where they're all having that conversation and it's just clicking. And I'm not li listening for perfection. I won't even know perfection, you know, does anybody, but, no. but there's no, there's no mistaking that energy when it's happening, when they're linked up and they're, they're communicating telepathically and that vibe is happening. Like you feel that, you know, and it gives, I feel like I get goosebumps even just talking about it. You know, yeah. Brent, so. Brent Midlands told me once that when he joined the band, Bobby Weir told him, you can't really rehearse for being in the Grateful Dead. I mean, you can get the changes <laughs> of the song organized and all that stuff, but it's not really about that. I, I, I think of it as keeping the vessel clean, being ready for anything. Like, yeah. I, as I say, playing every day has been amazing for my chops. So when I go out and play with other people, I'm, I'm so jazzed. First of all, I'm horny to be playing with other people after three years of playing solo. Sure. But also this form of music making is, uh, it's just a warm and welcoming way to do things. You know, everybody mm -hmm. has the power to dominate the rap and the good grace not to. So it's mm. what happens when everybody's listening to each other and pouring their energy into a collective moment rather than ego tripping on your licks or whatever you know what i mean that that's when you're out there feeling that thing it's because everybody on stage is locked in together the music is playing the band hello mm -hmm. and all of you guys are in on the transaction as well as gary pointed out yesterday on tales when phil begins his donor rap at the end of all his shows he says thank you for helping us make this music wow 
And that's an acknowledgement of the power of the audience. And I say it at the end of my live streams, you know, it, the, the, doing this wouldn't be any fun if I, if you weren't out there. Now I can't see anybody when I'm doing a live stream, by singing into a camera, but I've been on the radio for 35 years. So I've all, I'm used to talking to invisible audiences, but I know that people are out there. And I always say, it wouldn't be any fun to do this if I didn't know you were listening. What's the, what's the point of playing if nobody's listening? Exactly. Can you see the chats? Can you see people? Because I, I, I tune in sometimes and I see and I see a lot of the same people there. Firefly. Oh, they, I hello, have Firefly. a couple dozen regulars. That yeah, blows my mind. You do. They're there every day. And do you know? Wonderful. I mean, do you, can you see them chatting and when you're playing or you see I, it afterwards? I maybe? see it out of the corner of my eye, but I okay. don't really look at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, when I'm, I'm, when I'm, it could be distracting, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm, I use a, a, a platform called Restream to set up my thing and I can feed four different uh, platforms at once, right? So I see the chat going by, but I don't really look at it because I decided pretty early on that I didn't want to be sitting there looking at a screen and saying, oh, hi, Bob, and answering <laughs> questions from people. You know, right. it's like, yeah, hold yeah. on a second. Yeah. It's yeah. a live performance. So I very rarely, interact with people uh, in that way, but I do see it going by and occasionally pick up a, a, a comment. And I sometimes will go back and, and revisit the conversation, but it's just, it, it's just that I know people are there. I have, I mm-hmm. have one regular listener who sends me a list of requests literally every morning. Wow. And I have another That's one awesome. that sends me requests most days and various other people will say hey it's so-and-so's birthday you know you do something for her or whatever and so i i have a right and i've met some of these people in real life when uh, on these few occasions when i've gotten out of the house to play a gig some of them have come to my shows and i've got to meet them and it was just it's a great thing yeah to have an ongoing relationship with a couple of dozen people that are watching me every day and by the way, you know, it, that is also an incentive to keep mixing it up. I've played more than 500 different songs over the course of this thing. Wow. I have several dozen of my own, several dozen Grateful Dead songs. I play a lot of Beatles songs, and I just play tons of other stuff because I've been writing songs for more than 50 years, mm-hmm. and I've been performing for more than 50 years. And all those Cat Stevens songs that I was playing in coffee shops in 1972, they're still in here. <laughs> That's that's so, amazing. That's awesome. So something here, I'll tell you another story. Um, uh, um, about a month ago, my brain radio started playing this song that I remember brain radio. when I was a kid. Uh, a song called "I Remember You" that was a hit for a guy named Frank Ifield, and I went and looked it up on YouTube, and it turned out it was from 1962, which was the year that I started listening to to music. My my brother. I have an older brother, and he went back to New York in the summer of 61, I think it was, to um, stay with the grandparents. And we had an older cousin there who's about 10 years older than us, and he turned my brother on to, like, rock and roll radio. So he comes home, and the transistor radio we've been using to listen to Dodger games start getting starts getting turned to KRLA, and we're listening to music. And this is the early 60s hmm. when it was all on the same. We're hearing Jack Jones and Letterman, Letterman. and <laughs> uh, Chuck Berry all on the same radio station, you know. So I, I started getting all this music poured into my brain. I was playing the clarinet in school. 
and I so I learned about music, but I don't feel like I became a musician until I picked up the guitar in 1969 and started writing songs. But this song popped up in my brain, and when I looked it up on YouTube, I realized that I remembered it really, really clearly, and I knew all the words, and it was a really simple matter to sort out the chords and start playing it live in my show. And that's just one example of things to just pop up, or, or people will give me a request for a song that I sort of vaguely know. And I'll go, okay, let me see what I can do. And I'll go look it up and I'll look up the lyrics. And I, you know, like there's a lot of, I, I have a, a, like one or two talking head songs. I occasionally will do psycho killer if I'm feeling sort of gonzo. That's and awesome. I have, you know, just, I have a few Eagle songs in my book from back in the day and things like that. But it, it's just really, really fun to uh, take song like Beatles songs. They're beautiful, beautiful little packages of chord changes and melody that last about two and a half minutes, three minutes in their versions. But if you loop the intro, you can jam on it for a few minutes before you start singing the song. Then you can loop the chord changes and jam on it in the middle of the song a little bit, too. One of my favorite tricks to do in a live show these days is start doing this little four chord loop and jam on it for a little while. And it always gets a surprised laugh from people when I start singing, she loves you, yeah, 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 <laughs> over what sounded like a bluegrass groove. So it's that kind of stuff. I'm just having so much fun with it. It's just, it's, it's just great. And I feel like oh, I am awesome. a direct descendant of the Grateful Dead in that sense of writing my own music, but integrating it into the, the larger world by playing songs by other people in my own style. Hmm. It's I I'm I could hardly be happier as a musician than, than where I'm at right now. That's really great to hear. Wow, that's amazing. So um, I got so many things I want to talk about. Uh, I I was gonna no I'm gonna wait to talk, to ask about that. So I'd like to hear about. You said you started playing music at uh, in 1969. Yeah. So was there a particular group that you latched onto or singer or, or musician that really got you going or, and how did that, I'll just let you answer that. Well, my, my, I have an older brother and a younger sister, both of whom played a little bit of guitar. My brother had a guitar and he was fairly into it and was, in fact, I realized not long ago that the first time I ever heard new, new Minglewood blues from the, from the Grateful Dead's first album, it was my brother playing it for me. And I remember seeing the lyrics to that, that he had written out. So he's not a deadhead. And I don't think he might even remember that he knew a couple of dead songs back in the day, but he was playing the guitar and I was a tortured teenager, you know, tripping on the weekends and writing this tortured teenage poetry and stuff. And so one day he said a couple of my songs to what I found out was pretty much stolen licks from other songs, but he put some of my lyrics to music and taught me the chords. So the cool. first thing I ever played on a guitar was a song of my own composition. Wow. And that's got me on that path really early. But I also went out and bought the CSN first album book. Mm. I bought the Beatles white album songbook. I bought a Bob Dylan songbook. So I started learning songs out of the songbooks. But again, I was always doing my own music as well. And I and I never got into that thing of getting it perfect. I never really mm -hmm. cared about doing a perfect version of somebody else's song. I would always sort of adapt it to my own style. And I think that's an important distinction. The, the people mm -hmm. who write music and people who only play music are slightly different schools of music, right? You're like, if I had started playing the guitar 
for the sake of playing guitar and become obsessed with Jeff Beck licks and all that stuff that my fellow musicians were doing in those days, you know, I might be a different kind of musician now. But since my primary interest was singing my own songs, everything else was was done in service of that. So I never became obsessed with like perfection in guitar playing. And I never became obsessed with learning all the different styles. And con as a result of that, I never had to play bar mitzvahs and stuff. I mean, I, I played a few <laughs> weddings over the years, but I was never in one of those bands that had to keep up with the current hits mm -hmm. and play all that stuff. You know, I was in bands in the early going that did song. I was in a band with a bunch of vocal majors from Cal State Hayward and we were playing like Loggins and Messina songs in uh, in bars in Alameda and stuff. So I was in a, a band that did covers, but we also did originals. They played a bunch of my original songs. So it, it was really about being a songwriter and becoming a, a guitarist and learning how to sing and learning how to be a performer in service of songwriting. Wow, that's really beautiful. So <clears throat> what was your crossroads with The Grateful Dead? I know you were a musician and then you, you became a journalist. Uh, oh. where, where, in that, um, where in that timeline, where did you cross with The Grateful Dead? Because your philosophy and, and, and intuition of the way you played, I mean, just fits perfectly with The Grateful Dead. When did you realize like, oh, these guys are kind of like me? Or did that happen right away? Or did that take a little while until you I were able to I became like them. My, I, I was, I had a songwriting partner, Stephen Donnelly, that I met in high school, and we were using the sort of Elton John and Bernie Toppin model of songwriting, you know. But he started talking to me about the Grateful Dead and said, "We should go see the Grateful Dead, you know. We should go see the Grateful Dead." And I thought, oh, I don't know, man. They're like seem like kind of heavy rockers to me. And plus, they got a song called <laughs> "Ripple" about cheap wine. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> little did I know. So he finally gets me to go on March 5th, 1972. And we took a giant dose of acid that day. And our designated driver delivered us to San Francisco. And I climbed up into the balcony of Winterland and heard this stuff, which was overwhelming to me. And, and But little bits of it stuck in my brain. And when I came came back to Earth a few days later, I started getting the records and learning how those songs worked and stuff. This was the year that Garcia came out and later Ace came out. And mm. later in the year, Europe 72 came out. But, you know, I started up on, on Working Man's Dead and American Beauty and the first album and stuff. And then somehow I knew that when they when they came back, I should go to all the shows. And so we camped out at the San Jose box office and bought tickets for three Grateful Dead shows in a row at the Berkeley Community Theater in August of that year. And then they added a fourth show and we camped out and bought tickets for that one. So in August, I went to four shows in five days and we had really good seats and I got to watch these musicians. And there was something about it. There were, first of all, there was just this incredible charisma. You could feel the love coming at the band from the audience, and mm. there was they were just incredibly compelling to watch. And I was watching Bob Weir play this guitar style that was unlike anything I'd ever heard. You know, rhythm guitar was John Lennon, do 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 do, right? And here's Bobby doing these chord stabs and stuff like Tennessee Jed. This song has got more holes in it than a block of Swiss cheese. It's just everybody's playing short bits 
that fit together into this incredible groove. Bobby's not playing, but the bang, the bang, dropping four flights, and he's playing, and Jerry's going, doom, doom, right? And the bass is dancing around in between it instead of playing a boring straight pattern. So, and then they would, then there was this part in the song, they go, baby, won't you carry me? And I, back to Tennessee. It's like that, the little moment of tension and release in that was really illuminating to me. Stuff like that, little bits of songs. And I started to realize that composition you know, that you could make a song where the guitar and the vocal interacted with each other and the guitar was playing certain important parts of it and the singing was doing different parts of it. So they just opened up my my sense of composition first of what songs can do and what songs should do. I was sitting there trying to write hit singles for some stupid fucking reason. There was a, <laughs> there was a, a guy who wanted to be a music pl- uh, publisher who found me probably through an ad in the local underground paper or something. And he actually liked my songs and took me into the studio to make demos, never sold any of them, but he was trying to, he once sent me a dollar bill and said, go buy a copy of this single, um, uh, drift away by Dobie gray. I want you to write songs like that. Huh. And me and my songwriting partner, like we're much too hip to do this. <laughs> As only an 18 year old, could, could say to a, in a situation like that. But I, the dead just freed me from that. The dead showed me that you could write songs that say something and you could write songs that don't tell you everything they know the first time you hear them. You could write songs that reward repeated engagement. And then I figured out, oh, Robert Hunter. Oh my God, look what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's, he's painting pictures with just a few lines that tell that show you the scene, but give you huge amounts of room to fill in your own shadings. And you wow. participate in these songs by listening to them and they can tell you something new years later. You know, you can listen to this song for decades and suddenly hear something different in it. And that's, it was just magical to me. And, and that, that word play could be part of it and evoking other songs. I mean, look how much of Robert Hunter's music was like brilliant reimaginings of existing songs. Stagger Lee from a female protagonist's point of view, a a, a classic example. Terrapin, the first movement of Terrapin Station, Lady with a Fan, is a rewrite of The Lady of Carlisle, which they got from Pentangle or the new Lost City Wrangler, or or, um, uh, what's his name? Ian uh, Tyson. Anyway, Mm. the, the point is that that these guys were literate and they were bringing stuff into their music that evoked other art forms and brought in verbal ideas from other places, you know? And, and so they just opened me up to doing more sophisticated stuff. And then over the next few years, I started to understand what was going on in the jams between the songs. That was the hardest part to understand, but like the conversation that was happening. Yeah, I didn't really know what that was until I'd seen it a few times and began to realize that it was improvising and it was creating new music right there on the spot, that they were talking to one another and taking it someplace and letting it evolve and develop itself over time. And that, 
opened my mind up considerably. And when I moved to Berkeley in 1973, a high school buddy of mine was just leaving and moving back to San Jose. And he said, look up my buddies on Etna Street. They play Grateful Dead music. So starting in 1973, I was hanging out with a bunch of guys that and we played dead songs together and we started a band and we played fraternities and clubs and stuff. So that, uh, you know, as soon as I could afford an electric guitar, I started playing in that kind of band and, and I've been doing that ever since. But it, it, when you find a bunch of guys that understand how this music works and we never made set lists. We never said we're going to play this into that. In fact, we would always say, I would always say, let's do China Cat into something else besides Ryder. Let's do Scarlet Begonias and not go to Fire on the Mountain. Let's see where it goes someplace else. And so we were open to and intent on keeping it as uh, unplanned and improvisational as possible. And I've really brought that philosophy out into my work as much as possible. Even today, the Garcia Live, Garcia Songbook Live band doesn't make a set list. We make a menu and we see mm. what feels right to play next. And it's also possible for somebody in the, in the band to lead a jam into something in the same way the Grateful Dead did. You know, you'd, they start hinting. I remember the Oakland Stadium October 76, the two nights with the Who and the Dead. And on the second day, they were playing the end of the first set. They were doing that sort of funk version of Dancing in the Streets. And they're jamming along in there. And all of a sudden, they're playing Wharf Rat. It was wonderful. It was amazing. How did they do that? And when they came out of Wharf Rat, they just sort of meandered back into finishing the the. Uh, uh, dancing bit you know it was like and and when i interviewed phil several years later for the first time i mentioned that and he remembered it too and he said yeah it surprised us too wow, wow. <laughs> and that's that's the kind of thing you you live for you those moments are the kind of thing that you want to create the space for and not push them into existence but just let them happen and let an idea it's like so one, one time I was in a band with these people and the jam is winding down and I was about to like move into this next thing. And the keyboard player, a half a beat ahead of me, launched into Werewolves of London. Pissed me off. I was trying to do this other thing. <laughs> and years later, I realized that I was in the wrong to be pissed off about it because he was perfectly entitled to do what he did that I was about to do a minute later, right? But that, it's, it's going with the flow. It's accepting. I, I, it requires that you be generous. As I said earlier, we have the power to dominate the rap and the good grace not to. I love that so much. That's great. And, you know, I'm really fascinated <clears throat> by that musician's perspective, right? Like uh, being a layman and a, a non-musician, a non-songwriter, a non-composer, uh, you know, just witnessing what is occurring with the music uh, from the audience is mind blowing, especially with any kind of psychedelics, right? Uh, uh, which was in the past for me, but to have that, to bear witness to that and experience that and have it change uh, my perspective on so many things, right? Uh, change my worldview, whatever it is, to shape uh, a philosophy on life. I mean, I, I don't think that's saying too much. Uh, but for a musician uh, 
to hear even deeper into what's happening, to have an even uh, more narrow or wider, I don't know, perspective of what's occurring with the music, to be able to see inside of it even more, is, it has to be even more mind-blowing, right? And then to have it shape your playing uh for another what 40 years beyond that that's i mean that's really incredible uh to hear that experience and hear that perspective Uh, it's it yeah i don't know i I don't i didn't hear the question in that but i I, it is it's it's in it is great to be conversant in this music and have the tools available to interact with people and also just Because I never made myself into a Jerry guy or a Bobby guy. There's elements of both of those guys in my playing, but I can be a third guitar in in a a jam, and by playing less to leave room for the others, and they leave a little room for me, we create something that's a little more than just the usual interlocking parts because there's a you know another voice in there, and when you're doing this right, there's plenty of room for that. Oh, man. All right. So uh, end of part one. Next week, we'll have part two. Uh, more more goodies from from David Gann. So thank you, David, uh, for your time and your energy hanging out with us. Uh, we're looking forward to airing the second part of the episode next week. So uh, stay tuned. Come back. Check it out. All right. Dead Tour Tales is brought to you by your friendly neighborhood Dead Merch guys, Always a Hoot Studios. I'm James. And Brandon. Big thanks to our behind-the-scenes maestro, our producer, Kevin, Grandpa Kev, Little General McCracken. (laughs) And as always, the Grateful Dead for being the soundtrack to our lives. Don't forget to check out our Dead Tortales merch at deadtortales.com. We have a couple killer designs by our friends and grateful artistic contributors, Ben Korn and Aaron Cadigan. Also, check out our other site, Always a Hoot Studios, Com, where you'll find a wider array of Grateful Dead-inspired merchandise. Lastly, please check out our Patreon. Brandon, can you tell everybody about Patreon? Patreon, you guys, you need, we need subscribers. So you can do different levels, $5 a month, $10 a month, all the way up to $100 a month. You can get different free sticker packs, merch, guest spot on the show. Hey, you can be on the show. The show could be all about you for a measly hundred dollars a month. <laughs> measly, measly. Come on, hook us up with some Patreon subscriptions. Let's do Avocados it. Avocados are expensive. Exactly. We all love right. guacamole. Uh, thanks for listening. Hope to see you out on the road sometime. In the meantime, make sure you come back and check out next week's episode, part two with David Gans. It's a banger. It's going to be a hoop. Woo!
Thank you.